I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Tates for today's episode of the Meta Hour podcast. Jenny is board certified in cognitive behavioral therapy and a licensed clinical psychologist in New York and California. Jenny has a private therapy practice based in LA and serves as a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA. Her writing has appeared in numerous prominent publications, including the New York Times and Time Magazine, and she's the author of two books. And Emotional Eating, and her 2018 release, How to Be Single and Happy, Science-Based Strategies for Keeping Your Sanity While Looking for a Soulmate. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. It's a real honor to, to talk to you. Well, it's, it's a great delight. I'm going to start by congratulating you on your new book. It came out at the start of the year, and I love the title, How to Be Single and Happy, Science-Based Strategies for Keeping Your Sanity While Looking for a Soulmate. So my, one, some of my friends once formed what they called the Happy Singles Club, rather than thinking of their singledom as a kind of lesser state, um, to see it as kind of a, an ex, you know, it was something that existed. There was the true truism of their life at that time, and that why not be happy? Um, instead of feeling you did not have the thing you needed to have. So I wondered if you could tell the listeners out there how you came to this work and how you found your your path around it. Well, this is such a uniquely wonderful experience because you actually helped a lot with this uh, mm-hmm. process. Um, when I was working on my book proposal, I, I reached out to you and um, had a really meaningful conversation that really stayed with me and uh, was sort of the central thesis of my book about you know really asking yourself, this is a, the advice you gave me when we sat down for tea in your apartment uh, maybe two years ago at this point, you know, really thinking to yourself, like, how would your life be different if you had a partner? Um, what would, you know, would you carry yourself differently? Would you treat yourself differently? Would you carry yourself with less shame? Would you pursue different life experiences? And really considering, you know, just doing that without a partner because um, it's totally a, a story that we tell ourselves that we need a plus one to live fully. And I, I guess I came to this work um, uh, predating our conversation a little bit, just uh, really noticing in, with a lot of my patients this real challenge of uh, everything seems to be going well except looking for love is can feel like a full-time job that's uh, mm. not rewarding. And I entirely relate to that process because I, I dated for a long time in New York City and Los Angeles and um, can empathize with how, you know, you can easily fall into feeling like there's something wrong with you if you're not feeling connected to someone or, um, and it could easily lead to sort of not feeling connected to yourself. So both kind of professionally seeing it with my patients and having the personal sort of, um, understanding of the experience made me think that this was really a topic that hadn't been covered sort of with a scientific lens. And I was really sort of shocked by some of the research on how happy marriage makes us. And it's, it's pretty modest, um, so that's mm-hmm. sort of like conversations between, um, you know, talking to you and talking to other experts really made me think that, you know, common um, understanding about relationships and what people think privately are at odds. And um, I want people to feel empowered to know that there's um, a lot of happiness within their hands, regardless of who's sitting next to them at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, you know, uh, I keep sort of, reading about the prevalence of loneliness in uh, America, now England, they did a study. Um, I think in England they have a minister of loneliness or somebody who's in charge of combating it, something like that. Um, And uh, this is something you tackle in in the book. Here's a quotation from you. Uh, And part of it I'm going to follow with needing a, a, a definition. Uh, Christopher Massey and a team of researchers at the University of Chicago analyzed more than 77 research studies to pinpoint what created feelings of loneliness. They found that maladaptive social cognitions or negative thoughts related to interpersonal situations were strong predictors of loneliness, and that thinking differently turned out to be the most powerful way to feel more connected. So the definition uh, that would help me is maladaptive social cognitions. (laughs) 
What is that? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's these thoughts that come up when we are with other people that either, you know, keep them apart for us or keep us keep us apart from them, sort of thoughts like we have nothing in common when you first meet someone and you barely even know the person's name and you sort of conclude that there's really no point or you're too busy. Um, These thoughts that just quickly sort of spontaneously arise when we face someone new. And it doesn't matter how many people are around if your mind is sort of creating these obstacles and these barriers that keep you apart from someone else, whether that's stories about you being better than them or them being better than you or... um, you know, sort of thoughts about what you're going to say that make you feel like you have, there's no way you're ever going to have a meaningful conversation with someone. So it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, people have this false sense that a a romantic relationship is the cure for loneliness, but it's actually Mm -hmm. targeting this concept of maladaptive social cognitions. So if, if it's sort of um, a distorted way of thinking, thinking about ourselves, thinking about our lives, that's um, really a strong indicator of loneliness. It would be independent of relationships, and uh, it would also speak to the power of mindfulness, I suppose, to to see what your mind is doing and to be able to remind yourself, well, that's just an old tape or that's an old pattern or I can I can well let go of that, something like that. Absolutely. And I think mindfulness is one of the biggest remedies for loneliness because you could maybe quickly catch on to that sort of old tape when you're with someone before you sort of let that tape dictate your behavior. Like, you know, you walk away from a conversation or quickly sort of write someone off and you really think through, oh, that's just something that my mind is mental sort of spam that my mind's creating rather than a, an accurate prediction. And I don't think it's actually, um, I don't think it excludes kind of changes in uh, behavior, right? So, like, I was thinking of um, kind of a, a current emphasis that I'm hearing about on the dissolution of various um, social entities in our, in today's America, for example, uh, which I, you know, quoted in my book, Real Love, um, uh, Robert Putnam, who talked, who wrote the book Bowling Alone, about the dissolution of things like bowling leagues. You know, places we used to come together and things like that, which are kind of fading. And so um, we might have to face some fears, I would think, in order to go out and make a point of connecting in a very conscious way. Yeah, absolutely. And a a big sort of aim of... um, the therapies that I specialize in is really not waiting to feel sort of like less anxious because that could take many years or your whole mm-hmm, life, mm-hmm. Um, but to be willing to sit mindfully with some of those uncomfortable emotions and continuing to sort of connect with someone, especially if you uh, can maybe change the goal rather than instead of trying to be liked or the most charismatic person at the party, just trying to maybe offer a kind word or um, look for the good in someone next to you. Mm-hmm. So, for, well, the first goal is getting to the party, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then exactly. fi- defining or, I guess, reframing what satisfaction is or success so that it's it's not so much in the hands of others, but it's really in your own hands. Yeah, exactly. And it's linked to sort of like a higher purpose rather than a goal that that's harder, harder to sort of measure and achieve. Well, it must be interesting in terms of technology because the the measurement is there, like how many likes did I get or how many 
whatever's did I get or how often was I retweeted or or something like that and and to understand that oh that's that's a path to a lot of suffering would it's, seem important yeah. We have so many ways to feel rejected and so many ways to uh, feel judged, like online and in real life. Well, let's talk about just getting to the party to begin with, you know, because um, if a lot of those social arrangements are not so prevalent anymore, we have to put out extra effort to find them. Um, Where does that extra effort come from? You know, it hopefully would come from a kind of self-compassion. And wisdom or understanding of like, oh, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have been this hard in another context, but this is the context of this time. And um, I mean, it's hard to get people to have a conversation. Like I am uh, strongly uh, entranced by my phone, let's say that, instead of addicted. And, uh, you know, uh, as you might know from whenever we go out together. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I you know, I, I do see the irony of – uh, never talking to the person you're with, you know, because you're on your phone. Um, and so it, it takes like an extra effort. Somebody said to me not too long ago that they used to love living in New York because you just have these odd conversations with somebody sitting next to them on the bus or in Park Bench or something like that. And, you you know, you you just like relate in a way and find out things about people and about life. And, and so now everyone's on their phone, you know, so you just sit there and um, you know, so it takes some effort to uh, really have a, a sense of connection or meeting meeting with people. Yeah, it really does. And there's this um, this idea in the therapies that I practice that a lot of times to manage anxiety, we use what's called safety behaviors, like things to make us feel more comfortable. Like maybe it's easier for someone to... Um, I don't know, like uh, give a speech if they have like a massive bottle of water that's unnecessary between mm-hmm. them and the, the microphone. And so I think in a lot of ways, technology has become sort of this like sort of quote unquote safety behavior where we feel more comfortable if we're at the party, but we're, you know, glued to the phone and we're texting. So we mm-hmm. don't really like have the anxious moment of trying to meet eyes with someone and feeling like our, you know, efforts weren't reciprocated. But the problem with safety behaviors is that we don't learn that we're safe without them. And um, it's so comfortable, you know, to some degree to hold on to your phone. And I love that you sort of disclose that, how tempting it is for you, because I think that's so validating for me and um, (laughs) for, for everyone out there that knows this is sort of an issue. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that people most want is to feel really seen and heard. Mm-hmm. And it used to be when I would teach people about validation and I would tell them to, like, make eye contact, they would, like, look at me like, oh, yeah, duh. Like, everyone knows that you have to make eye contact to make someone feel seen and heard. Um, but with technology, we have, like, so many ways to not make someone feel um, like they matter. So even that, like, even sort of having this stance of I want to be compassionate towards myself and I want to be compassionate to other people. So I'm going to try to, like, you know, introduce myself to one person that looks like they might need um, a warm hello at this new party or this mm-hmm. new um, social networking thing um, mm-hmm. in real life, uh, that might be a really nice way to sort of move outside your comfort zone. What would you describe? I mean, when I was younger, we used to talk about people being shy. Would you talk about that as anxiety now? or? Well, I think some people are more introverted and some people are more extroverted, but I think now... Um, 
uh, with this idea of maladaptive social cognitions, that would maybe be more like anxiety. Like, if there, there's one thing, I guess, if it's a preference, like, do, does a person prefer to sort of, um, you know, have a more, uh, you know, night on their own versus be with other people? Is it, you know, more of a preference or is it more that you have this story that um, if you went out, you wouldn't be well-liked or mm-hmm. you would feel mm-hmm. alone or um, there's no point because no one there would, you know, be a good person to connect with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think really doing some soul-searching and seeing it's it's certainly okay to prefer to be on your own, and that's sort of a big message that I um, want people to feel from reading my book, that, it, you know, you're enough and you don't need to surround yourself with people, um, mm-hmm. but also we're social beings and we do sort of need communities, and um, feeling connected and having a sense of social support is, like, actually, like, more linked to wellness than, you know, if you had the choice of giving up smoking cigarettes, um, which I recommend because it's a self-compassionate thing mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. um, or connecting with people. Uh, connecting with people is a stronger predict- predictor of longevity. So that it's actually like it's a life-saving thing to have a strong sense of community and relationships. Like I had read somewhere that um, that sense of social connection is not based on the sheer numbers of friends you have, uh, but it's how connected you feel. And so, uh, because of course, you know, coming uh, myself from a Buddhist tradition and having the idea of, you know, people um, not necessarily engaging in the world in the ordinary way, you know, or when I've gone on a three-month retreat, for example, which is the longest retreat I've been on. It's a silent retreat form, and so the only person I talk to is the teacher, and uh, yet I feel very connected to the people around me, even though we're not engaging in ordinary social discourse, and I feel very connected to the world. I, you know, I don't know the details of what's happening, and it's usually nice not to know for a little period. Um, but I care. You know, I don't feel I don't feel like I've dissolved those connections. And if anything, they get reinforced in that silence and just that sense of presence. And so, uh, you know, sometimes people say, and perhaps it's true to some degree. I don't know what the research actually is that if you've got one friend and you've got an illness, try to make three new friends. I don't know if that's true, but I have read that it's really not the numbers, but more the sense of connection. Absolutely. And I think that gets into like, I think this is like speaking to the remedy for maladaptive social cogn- mm-hmm. cognition is like this adaptive sense of like meta connection. Um, so I certainly couldn't agree with you more. And um, I think this is a really powerful example for people that put a lot of pressure on themselves to sort of like be the most charismatic, entertaining person that it's really just about being in a headspace of connection and giving people sort of like nonjudgmental stance and being compassionate towards yourself. And you don't even have to speak. I mean, it's just a sense of like uh, kindness and grace and um noticing without sort of like filling the space with words that can create a sense of community and closeness. Do you think that um, history goes through phases where sometimes it's more okay to be single and other times it's less okay to be single? And how would you, if so, what do you think about this time? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I don't know. It seems like this is a weird time that there's, this really great movement towards women's equality and feminism. Mm-hmm. And I'm really finding that um, 
even with this sort of like cultural shift towards empowering women and seeing women as enough, um, there is sort of this fixation just in um, day-to-day conversations with questions like, why is this person still single? Or um, these popular sort of uh, shows or magazine covers that really concerned with people's like romantic status, like that's like their sense of worthiness. Um, and so I'm hoping that this time, like there's like sort of a shift um, with the increase in sort of like feminism, but it seems like a, a lot of the people that I see still sort of feel plagued by this sense of um, there's something about being single that it feels stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's kind of remarkable to me anytime I look at like a magazine cover how women's relationship status seems to be the, you know, a, a person in the popular. Uh, I become separated or divorced. It's like the headlines of the news, and it's just sort of heartbreaking um, that women continue to sort of be defined by uh, their romantic situation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So uh, it reminds me, of course, of my own work when I wrote Real Love, for example, which was my most recent book, and talked about love not as a thing someone else can give us, and also not something someone can take away from us, but a capacity within ourselves that could ignite and does ignite in, you know, presence of certain people or art or music or just, you know, uh, uh, a kind of intentionality, like you say, you know, like thank someone today, smile at someone today, you know, go the extra step to being in conversation with a stranger, say something like that. Um, there's so many ways it's possible to bring forth uh, that real experience of love that are not dependent on either a romantic relationship or even dependent on um, somebody responding in a certain way. I love that, and I have to tell you that I, um, when I was deciding whether or not I should write this book, I took a few minutes and I just looked on like the Amazon um, best-selling books in the dating genre, and I was just like sort of, and I encourage your audience members to do the same, and I was sort of shocked by like, um, I don't want to, I try to practice non-judgmental stance, so I'm not going to call out any names, but I was sort of shocked by some of the um, titles that didn't seem very like sort of respectful or compassionate, um, headlining the dating genre, Um, and one of the things that brought me so much joy um, was seeing sort of like real love um, at the top of the dating uh, bestsellers <laughs> list, and it was sort of like this really exciting uh, moment where hopefully, like you know, the combination of real love and um, uh, other books that are more compassionate and sort of empowering to women and men as well who are uh, not coupled will sort of create a trend towards more acceptance and uh, sense of respecting everyone, regardless of. Uh, their partnership status. Mm-hmm. Well, for a long time, I mean, not that long in terms of when you were writing the book, given how long a book takes to get published, but um, for a while now, although no longer, uh, my book on Amazon was entangled with some dating book uh, because I went from, I don't know, like 40 reviews to 400 reviews. And and uh, the comments were things like, this guy is just trying to teach people how to catch babes. And I go, what? You know, like, <laughs> so it took like a long time in relative terms to to get Amazon to respond. Like, wait a minute. Wow. You've gotten me confused. You've enmeshed with somebody <laughs> else. So now now we're apart again, he and yeah. I. And, uh, I love it. My book is just standing on its own with its own message. I love it. But 
Yeah, and I think it's it's so like wonderful, like the message that you mentioned about community and the sense that even at a silent retreat, you could feel so. Um, connected because I think a lot of times people look to love to sort of fill a personal void mm-hmm. um, and really learning through mindfulness and other sort of practices um, to be connected to yourself is I think the healthiest way to actually find the love within yourself and also with other people. Mm-hmm. It's so great. So you're a mom. I'm a mom, yes. <laughs> and uh, do you see like the kind of conditioning that your kids are getting as being um, influential and different in in terms of being able to hang out with themselves, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like, you know, clinical psychology couldn't have been um, a better, a more interesting sort of like area of study because it's, you know, I certainly try to use all the things I teach my patients uh, myself and also at home with my kids. And I really try. Um, It's so tempting, especially for people that are busy with their careers. And, um, you know, I find myself, you know, being preoccupied with trying to catch up with work and writing and respond to patient calls to really try to sort of validate my children and give them sort of like this quality time without um, distraction and realizing that that's like the ultimate gift more so than, um, you know, uh, big vacation once a year, but sort of daily, like, quality time in a sense of uh, noticing and honoring their emotions rather than trying to quickly change them or fix them. And um, I really want to raise my children to feel like they're enough without getting caught up in the maladaptive social cognitions that are so common in schools and um, in sort of social circles, especially as, as sort of kids grow up. And you have one boy and one girl, is that right? Yeah, I have a one-year-old baby boy and I have a three-year-old girl. <laughs> Do you see differences? Uh, well, I guess every kid is different anyway, but I'm curious, you know, beyond or before the kind of intense social conditioning, um, just in their nature? You know, I one thing that I absolutely love about my daughter who's um, who's, a little older than my son is that she goes up to people with this like joyful curiosity and enthusiasm and just says hello to everyone. She'll uh-huh. be like walking down the street and says, hello, hello. And she wants to stop everyone. And she doesn't care if they want to say hello back to her. She continues to say hi to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really never want to take that away. And it's sort of sad how we take that away from ourselves with sort of thinking like, Oh, should I say hi if I met this person before? And like, mm-hmm. they should say hello to me or should I call this person if I called them last time? And I, I sort of mm, like, interesting. Yeah. I think my goal is really to sort of preserve this like sense of like, I want to say hello to people because um, I could make them feel seen and important. And I want to do that regardless of whether or not they, uh, you know, they seem happy to hear from me or not. Mm-hmm. Um, or they've given me the the clue that it's that they'll give me the same. Um, yeah, I think I think I, like a lot of us are born with this sense of like connection to other people, but then unfortunately that gets lost through painful experiences potentially along the way. And and but we could at any point sort of pivot and uh, sort of approach people with a sort of beginner's mind and approach ourselves with mm-hmm. a, sort of that story. Well, I started my book, Real Love, with kind of the 
laying out the belief I had in the principle that uh, love was a capacity within ourselves and that, you know, as I said, other people may ignite it or inspire it or threaten it, but ultimately it was within us, it's ours, and that no one can actually take it away as a capacity. And I ended the book, it took me a long time to write the book, so this was some years later, uh, with an extension of that notion. So it's like if love is like an ability or a capacity inside us, then isn't it also our responsibility? Like if you want to have love in a day, maybe you have to introduce it in some conversation. You know, if you want it in an encounter, maybe you have to be the one to bring it forth or, or whatever it is. And that if we do claim it as a capacity within ourselves, then it is up to us to tender it and um, generate it and sort of nourish it in all those ways. Yeah, I, I love it, and I, I couldn't agree with that sentiment more, and I think that this is a huge sort of um, part of the science of um, feeling connected to people, that love is really a kind of a behavior rather than a um, gift people give us, but do we want to behave lovingly to ourselves and other people? Well, given that media is going to all pretty much go the other way, you know, um, do you when you're working with clients, do you talk about, say, the use of social media and more maybe temperate ways to use it or uh, kind of mainstream media and, and how to analyze what you're looking at and things like that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my patients actually bring up with me sort of noticing that um, they maybe, like, feel more alone and more isolated. And social media is a great way to sort of just, like, fill yourself with um, ideas that you're somehow you've somehow been excluded, or you're mm-hmm. you know not being invited to these fabulous events that people are posting their photos of. Um, so I think really thinking through like what's a healthy relationship for yourself, and um, you know if you feel fulfilled by sending sort of like a an email versus picking up the phone and calling. And I, I think it's a lot more comfortable sometimes to just use sort of. Um, Social media is a way to to keep in touch, and sometimes that's great. But I think it's it's also really nice to sort of like be with people in real time, in real life, uh, to mm-hmm. feel even more connected. But I, I have to get back to something you said, which I yeah. thought was so fabulous. You um, said that you sort of used to find yourself as shy. Yeah. And I just I would love to hear because I find myself so inspired by you and your work and your. Um, sharing your personal story, um, how did you, I, I know a little bit because I, I, I'm a big fan of your work, but um, I would love to hear again uh, in real time um, how you sort of came to sort of connect so deeply. I mean, for someone who notices feeling sort of a little bit more um, private to then come forth and travel around the world. And mm-hmm. I joke with you when I speak to you that you're like on a perpetual world tour, yeah, I know. <laughs> giving your teachings and for, you know, full days. Because um, I, I think this has this will teach so many people, and I will um, certainly relay this message to my patients. Of like, because I think a lot of people sort of write themselves off as like this is just how I am, and they're not able to sort of step aside outside of their comfort zone. So I was just wondering mm-hmm. how you came to do that. Well, I mean, I think you were completely correct and, and very um, wise in talking about you know the this difference between being an introvert, which I also am, and. Uh, and having some maladaptive social cognitions, or, uh, if I got that right. So, um, I mean, some people are more introverted, and, and you know, it's sort of like 
this is an interesting time with Susan Cain's work and, you know, the recognition that some people are more introverted. Like I would much rather send a text than a phone, than call somebody. And um, I joke, it came up, I guess I said it because you said something about networking. And, and I thought about those times people urged me to, you know, pay a lot of money to go to some conference where I'm not really speaking, but it'll be a chance to network. And I think, network, I'm going to sit in my room, you know, like, that's not going to happen. I'll probably watch some of it online too. You know, like um, that would be a complete waste of money. Uh, but um, there are other there are other ways of holding back or or being cut off that are not just a kind of personal preference. And and I think the personal preference is fine. It's like we might as well have some peace in our lives. And however that's going to be defined, you know, whether it's an all night party or um, sitting in your room and having dinner there. Um, but, you know, there are ways in which I, I talk about sometimes like how when I first began teaching meditation, um, you know, the form of our intensive retreats, which was the only form we, we started with, uh, is one where people practice all day and there's individual teacher contact or there's questions and answers and things like that. But there's there's only one kind of real lecture, which happens at night. And I could not give that talk. I couldn't give the lecture. I was too overcome with fear. And uh, the first retreat that we were invited on as a kind of collective uh, to teach was a month-long retreat, so I didn't give a single talk uh, for the month. And uh, I was working with my friend Joseph Goldstein, and people used to go up to Joseph and kind of yell at him, like, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her speak? And he said, I'd be perfectly happy if she gave a talk. It's just like, talk to her. She won't do it. I just couldn't do it. I was terrified. And and part of what I was terrified about was the thought that I was going to be giving the talk and I'd be like in the middle of a sentence and my mind would just go blank. And I would just be sitting there. I wouldn't know what to say and everyone would judge me and it would be so terrible. And, and then you know, months and months went by and then I had the thought, you know, there is this other meditation technique aside from mindfulness, which is called loving kindness, and which I had not really done intensively at that point. But I knew about it, and I thought, you know, there's a guided meditation that goes along with loving kindness. So if I were to do the talk on that topic and my mind went totally blank, I wouldn't have to sit there for very long because I could just launch into the guided meditation. and Maybe no one would even realize what had happened. And so I began giving one talk. It was the only talk I could give, which was on loving kindness. And at home in Massachusetts, I had piles and piles and piles of cassette tapes of me giving one talk. Um, and then one day, and this was also a long time later, I thought, you know, they're all kind of loving kindness talks because they're all about connection. Like no one's really sitting there, you know, to hear my brilliant expertise on anything, but we're sitting there because we all want to connect. And I wanted genuinely to connect with them. I knew they wanted to connect with me. They've been practicing all day. Uh, they wanted a sense of being a part of something and a sense of a human family. And so I thought, oh, you know what? They're all about connection. They're all about loving kindness. That's what they all are. Um, that's the real point, you know. So what if I make a mistake? I can also acknowledge that. Or so what if my mind goes blank? I could say, hey, my mind went blank for a moment. Where was I? Um, I I've been teaching, uh, I guess it was Bob Thurman, recently I was teaching with Bob and he would go on some brilliant but strange detour 
And then he'd say, he'd look up and he'd say, what's my point? And I'd go, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, it's like we're just all there together uh, yeah. is, is the vibe. And that's the sense that loving kindness gives us. And, and I realized, oh, they're all like loving kindness talks. They're all just about connection. And from that day on, I could give, I could give talks. So it'd be that kind of example. Like, and people I know who are my students will tell me, you know, they're really nervous and they have uh, stage fright and they have these terrible, debilitating conditions of anxiety and they have to perform, you know, they're musicians or they're poets or, or something like that. And, um, and they say they will stand up on that stage and they will start with silently doing a loving kindness meditation for everyone who's out there. So there isn't such a strong sense of us and them and they're, you know, sitting out there waiting to get me and judge me. It's like here we are together having an experience. I love this, and I'm so grateful to um, hear you talk about this because it's, I think, for people like myself that have heard you speak and know that you're such an incredible um, person who shares so heartfully and doesn't seem to be stumped by any question. It's such a nice thing to know that, like, mm-hmm. of course your mind told you that you had nothing to say and you mm-hmm. couldn't talk um, because that's just what our minds do, and you could sort of decide that it's your value of connection or compassion is going to transcend um sort of the story of your mind. And I, I similarly could share, which a lot of my clients find surprising, that I also feel sort of like a bit introverted at times and, you know, would much prefer to sort of have dinner on my own at a conference mm-hmm. versus um, go to a big sort of networking uh, dinner party of sorts. And I think a huge part of sort of self-compassion and um, preventing and reducing experiences of loneliness is giving yourself to like honor how you feel without judging that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to uh, quote you, and you can uh, give me give us commentary on, on what comes up in your mind. Um, and this is from your book, and you're tackling the notion of happiness and reexamining how we measure success in the pursuit of that happiness. And what you're saying is that instead of measuring our success by our goals, They can instead be defined by our values. And here's a quotation. We all need a clear sense of purpose, one that comes from our values, not our goals. Values are not the same as goals. With a goal, we win or lose, get it or not. With values, if we're acting consistently with our aims, we can cherish a sense of mastery, independent of the end result. Values aren't measured by what we get, but by what we give. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love this idea of people really focusing on what's within their control and um, what they offer versus what they're receiving. And I think it's just a much more, like, achievable um, space to live in if you're focused sort of on can I uh, be interested in someone else and uh, be respectful of someone else and not judge myself versus can I be the most liked person or can this person ask me on a third date Um and worrying sort of instead of sort of focusing endlessly and in a circular way on um, whether or not someone likes you or whether or not you did a good job at the job interview, which is so understandable to worry about because we're social beings and we want to do well, but to focus on did I do you know the best I can and, and am I treating myself in this moment with self-compassion if those are your values. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we, we can't, you know, I think you talk about, we you know, we um, you've talked about sort of trying to be like the, forget exactly how you say it, like the director and the producer of someone else's story. And mm-hmm. Is that how you say it? Um, that we're always, you know, coming up with like what someone's thinking of us, what, you know, what they're going to 
think of what we think of men. And it's just sort of this circular, unhelpful narrative. And, and what if instead we just focus on can we try to be kind and uh, both to others and ourselves? And that seems so much more peaceful and um, strategic than trying to be, like, hilarious and smart and perfect, which is um, such a false uh critical space to try to uh, perfect. Well, don't you think one of our greatest maladaptive social cognitions uh, is a sense of perfectionism? Absolutely, and I think it, it's it's so ironic because people that don't really like people that are perfect, I mean, there's something about being vulnerable and being imperfect that's so endearing and um, connecting, and so I just think it's like this... Um, crazy trap we get into because we can't be ourselves and then people won't really know us and they also won't really like us because it's kind of intimidating to be with someone that seems um, perfect. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, compassionate is a much better stance or kind or, um, I don't know, patient, listening, something that's within your hands, like a virtue. And, you know, if you, people, you know, a big part of my work is really helping people articulate their values and really thinking about what you know, how you want to be remembered or how you want to be celebrated. And I've never heard anyone say that they want to be celebrated as being, you know, the perfect, you know, third date or the perfect. <laughs> um, but it's really something about being kind. And um, and a lot of people that are incredibly wonderful people have, you know, like, I don't know, Steve Jobs just came to mind. He um, has nicely written about in, you know, his commencement speeches that he's given. And uh, I think when it was at Stanford about how, you know, imperfections have led to his sort of building his perfect <laughs> devices that keep mm-hmm. us disconnected. Right. Um, but uh, sort of, I, I think it's, you know, it breaks my heart to hear people tell me stories about ruminating about their perceived mistakes and in social interactions. And it's just like, that's um, such a painful space. That's going to create loneliness more so than um, romantic connection. Hmm. Well, let's think back to public speaking, you know, um, uh, I was thinking about this time I, I told Pema Chodron, Ani Pema Chodron, um, who's, of course, you know, a great, great teacher, about my fears and, and how terrified I was about giving a talk because I thought my mind would go blank. And she said, oh, I always used to be afraid that what would happen to me would be I'd be talking on one subject and then my mind would just leap to another subject and I'd go on on that second subject without realizing I'd done that. And she said, in all these years, no one has ever come up to complain to me and said, you know what, you were talking about A, and then you started talking about B, how dare you? You know, it's like, you're right. People, uh, even if anyone noticed, which is questionable, uh, people aren't, you know, sitting out there with their uh, scorecard, you know. Really, you know, like, it's okay to be yourself and not be so perfect. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really remarkable. I mean, I've sometimes had patients, let's say, that um, feel really anxious about asking a former employer to be a reference in their new job search or um, asking someone for feedback if they feel like the person's mad at them. And it's really remarkable how our minds come up with these worst-case scenarios that couldn't be farther from the truth mm-hmm. um, and that people are generally like have you know our best intentions in mind and it just reminds me I remember I had this funny experience where a classmate of mine in graduate school um, worked in the office of admissions 
And I casually said to him, I was like, oh, that's so funny. You have access to, like, all the notes that, um, you know, the admissions committee takes during our, um, you know, during our, like, interviews. And I remember being incredibly anxious the day of my interview and feeling like I did not articulate myself at all and that I was uh, sounding, like, incoherent and not smart and all these stories my mind came up with at the time. And this classmate of mine said, oh, yeah, I've actually read through everyone's um, the notes, it's kind of unethical, but the notes from the admission day, uh, you know, interview day for admissions, um, I could tell you what you said. And I was like, oh, sure, I would love to, to know. Mm. And it said, like, extremely articulate, you know, poised. And it, like, couldn't have been farther from, like, mm-hmm. what my mind told me, you know, on the, you know, I went to graduate school in the Bronx. It couldn't have been farther from what I was thinking from the subway ride from the Bronx right. uh, to the city and then for the remaining, like, six weeks till I heard back from the school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's um, sort of heartwarmingly silly how, or heartbreakingly silly, I should say, how our minds really hold us hostage for no reason and um, rather than sort of getting stuck in this like quest for approval and uh, from others to really try to find some sort of like place and space for uh, forgiveness and compassion for ourselves. It's really true. So tell me when you first got involved with mindfulness meditation. Uh, that's a good question. I I guess I first started through. Um, the physical practice of yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I'm from Los Angeles, and I got started practicing yoga when I was a teenager. Um, and I found it to be the first time that I really sort of slowed down and um, was in the moment. Um, uh, even though I was sort of moving, I, it was the first time I sort of had like some quiet. And then uh, through my psychology practice, a lot of the areas I specialize in are really rooted in mindfulness, Mm -hmm. like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and a practice called acceptance and commitment therapy and also um, a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy, which requires a therapist mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. All of them sort of require a therapist mindfulness practice and really seeing sort of the um, profound benefits clinically in the research and also just personally knowing um, how helpful the practice is to to me and... um, my patients and a big focus in the work is is not only sort of having a daily sitting practice, but also really trying to participate fully in your life. So, um, your like whole day is kind of like full of these meaningful experiences where your head and your body and um, your intention are all sort of aligned, and you're not you know talking to someone and thinking that you know they don't like you or you're mm-hmm. not you know. Um, going for a run, but thinking about all the mistakes you've made over the course of your life, but you're really just sort of um, head and heart in the moment. Well, I can see that it's also, it's a great skill to have as a therapist and uh, as you receive all of this. And it's also a great skill to impart, whether you do that directly or, you know, not. It's um, like, how does one deal with one's own mind, you know, when you see a, maybe a gravely maladaptive social cognition? popping up and it's really old and it's really kind of familiar and um, it's it's so compelling and yet you really know it's not true. Um, we need some tools, right? We need some skills in order to see what's happening, not freak out about it and uh, be able to not follow down that path again. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny. Um, there's some like novel clinical applications that are a little bit different than what one may do at a mindfulness retreat, but that are still sort of um, linked to the same process of taking your mind less seriously. And one of my favorites is um, helping patients sing sort of these like the thoughts that really bother them. Um, so one of my patients used to t- tell me a lot about thinking that he was a loser, you know, and, um, like Saturday night, if he didn't have plans, his mind would like come pounding mm-hmm. at the door with this story that he was a loser. And if he got some sort of, um, sense of rejection from someone or, you know, a clue of a hint of rejection, um, loser story came back in full force and he, um, we worked on him singing, um, mm. His favorite song was <laughs> um, You Have to Choose a Song That's Emotionally Incongruent with the Thought. Um, he liked that song, Do You Believe in Magic? Mm-hmm. And um, so he would sing I'm a Loser to that tune. Um, mm. And uh, I would sing it, even though my mind tells me not to, but I, I'm, I can barely remember the, how the tune goes, but it's a sort of upbeat tune. Um, and that's sort of a way to be kind of mindful with a sort of a clinical focus to mm-hmm. just really like the second you start singing that thought, it sort of dissolves and you sort of, you know, are kind of like on top of a mountain rather than stuck in the mud. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think it's really similar to something that you've taught me about sort of seeing your mind the way, um, an older person would watch yeah. children play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is kind of interesting. Yeah, but it's like, you know, the thought can last like a second with um, a song like that. So I really enjoy helping my patients sing their thoughts, and that allows them to be more mindful in whatever it is they're doing. So you came to loving-kindness practice sometime later, right, after you'd already begun mindfulness practice? I did, yeah. Actually, the first time I came to loving-kindness meditation was um, at a retreat of yours that uh, was the first time I studied with you. And um, I believe that was, I want to say, 2010. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. It was the first retreat that you did in with Ram Dass, I believe. Oh. Uh, 2010. On Maui or in Omega? Yeah, or on Maui. Maui. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. Um, was, I don't know if that was your first retreat with Ram Dass, but I, it was the first, my first retreat with you. Um, and I really loved it because one of my biggest... Um, personal challenges with mindfulness was like, I want to feel like I'm um, not just practicing for myself, but for like, like helping other people and feeling connected to people and and loving kindness was like one um, way that felt really fulfilling um, to sort of link my practice to sort of a better goodness. And, um, and I, I find it to be tremendously powerful and a huge part of what gives me um, the ability to connect with my patients and myself and um, people around me. Wow. Um, and do you actually teach the loving kindness practice? I do. I, I actually uh, I teach my patients uh, the, your practice of going through a series of mm-hmm. um, people. And, um, and remarkably, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but um, loving kindness meditation is described in the dialectical behavior therapy skills training manual. Really, um, as one of the mindfulness skills, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to take a picture and send it to you. Um, I wonder if that's a later adaptation because did Marshall Linehan sort of take 
uh, DBT out of her Zen practice where loving kindness she wouldn't did. exist? Yeah. She did, and in the revised one, yeah, um, yeah. the newest revision that came out, I believe, in 2015, there's a full page on loving kindness meditation, but I find it to be so helpful, and a lot of uh, my patients um, that sort of have an aversion to sort of slowing down find it really helpful, and I think it really links nicely onto this idea of sort of coping ahead, um, like mental rehearsal to prepare oneself for a challenging event, and I'm really, I mean, I feel like um, I take, my patients teach me as much or more than I teach them at times, and it's pretty profound to see people that I work with um, practice loving kindness meditation for people um, that have grossly mistreated them, like caused uh, horrific pain to them, and the forgiveness that they feel as a result of practicing loving kindness is really um, moving and meaningful and um much richer than sort of feeling holding on to the anger and the suffering. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so there's a prescription if you're if you're lonely or you're you're feeling really down and you don't have a date, maybe it's meditation night, you know. I love that and I, I, I love what you also said about like even if you're meditating with a, like especially if you're meditating with a group of people, like you're at a great party and you don't need to be uh, uh talking or winning someone over with your, you know, great uh, style and sense of humor, but you could just show up and sort of with kindness and um, interest, and that's enough. Wow, that's so beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and it's a real honor. And for people that are listening and thinking, wow, I I never could imagine being um, happy and really connected without a partner, um, that entirely makes sense given our cultural sort of conditioning, but it's pretty remarkable. I mean, there's actual research that finds that on average marriage increases happiness by 1%. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and um, so and happiness is, is actually a much better uh, way to sort of connect with other people. So a lot of people think first comes love, then comes happiness, but really first comes happiness, then comes connection. Oh, that's so great. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. So thank you for joining me today, and thank you for sharing such a positive and practical message. To learn more about Jenny and get a copy of How to Be Single and Happy, you can visit www.drjennytaitz.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.